Why don't you grab your Bibles? Would you turn with me to Galatians chapter 4? We'll set the scene in just a minute. We'll look at a passage of Scripture there. But before we do anything else, let me pray. Let me pray. Father, prayer is not our last resort. It's our first resort. Because it's our way of acknowledging just how much we need you. We need you more and more each and every passing day, each and every hour. This journey with you is not a journey into self-sufficiency, but into dependency, into that reality of walking step by step, by faith. And we thank you for this time this morning that we spend together in your scriptures. Lord, we pray that you'd use them to speak into our hearts and lives for the glory of your name, King Jesus. How we need you in this hour, how we need you in this church, how we need you in our city and our nation. And our nation. But we thank you as well that nothing is too hard for you. Let faith be stirred, let it arise in our hearts this morning, we ask. In Jesus' name. Amen. Galatians chapter 4 is the passage we're going to read from verse 3 in just a moment. By way of setting the scene for those who've come along the last few weeks, we've been in a series, we began in Matthew chapter 7, we looked at the way that Christ himself finishes the greatest sermon ever preached and proclaimed, and he gives this exhortation or this warning about two foundations. He says, those who grab a hold of my words and put them into action are like the man who builds on a firm foundation, that when the storms come, the house remains and it stands strong. Those who hear but do not do and put into action the words that Christ has said. It's like the man who built a house on sand. And as the storms came, not only did it fall, but great was the fall. That was the, the an initial setting of the scene, looking at two foundations, two different foundations. And we've simply entitled the sermon series, Firm Foundations. Looking at, well, there is a foundation that endures and there are storms that come. The particular storms we've been focusing on are what we've termed these dueling ideas of reality. Two completely different worldviews of ideas concerning what is real and what is not real. And in fact, we played off last week this proclamation of Christ as he came and he said, I am the I am. I am the I am. Nothing can be viewed apart from me, and without me, there is no true perspective on anything. The claim of the I am versus the claim of the secular modernity around us, of the I am. This is all about me, myself, and I. This notion of a utopian selfhood devoid of any transcendent purpose, it's just us. And we uncovered the disappointment and even the danger that that presents and I did have someone after the sermon, they said to me, well, I was kind of hoping it would be a bit more practical, like it was very kind of setting the scene on a, a higher level. And this morning will be a little bit like that as well, but I do want to delve down into some of the things we see around us. But we need to set the foundation first. And I said last week, as I'll say again, too often I think as believers we grab little issues in isolation. And it's not that the issues themselves are not important, they are, it's that we need to establish a framework and a foundation first so that we can appropriately address and delve in to some of these different issues. So I want to talk this morning about the notion of freedom, true freedom. What is freedom? Where does it come from? 
What does it mean for us to be free? And of course, Galatians is this wonderful epistle that's centered largely around this concept of freedom. So let's read this passage and then we'll apply it in the context of the series that we're in. Chapter 4. So Paul here is talking about slaves and then in verse 3 he takes the, the natural picture of slavery into a spiritual application. He says, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Verse 4, it's one of those but God moments. It says, but when the fullness of time had come, and I love that description. It's God's appointed moment. There's nothing coincidental. There's nothing accidental to this unfolding plan of salvation, purposed in the heart of God before he laid the foundations of the world. When the fullness of God's plan, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. This is his intention. He sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive his adoptions as son. Not just to redeem, not just to save us from, but to save us, if you like, for. There's a purpose for which this freedom, this redemption, this salvation that leads us towards To redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. I mean, there's a series of sermons. There's an eternity of unpacking and wondering and the mystery there. He sent his son by which we cry, this experiential reality. Unfortunately, here's a sermon for another day. Verse 8 says, formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. You're getting this picture of, of slavery, of captivity, and of redemption being freedom. Verse 9, but now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be? Once more, and of course, that is Paul's call all the way through. Verse 5, this pinnacle, he says, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Like, that's the whole purpose. It is for freedom. There is a freedom, a genuine freedom that is on offer here. Now, there's much that we could unpack there, but really for our purposes this morning, what I want us to see is that freedom is not a peripheral issue to the gospel. Freedom has always gone to the very core of the gospel, the good news. This is the message of the gospel. It's God who's come to set free. Freedom is at the heart of the mission. It's at the heart of the good news. And it's at the heart of who we are to be. You even see in this passage the the wrestle that we don't have time to unpack anymore. So live as you were free. Don't go back to slavery. That's not who you're called to be. It's not how you're called to live. You're called to live in freedom. And the lights have come on. Praise the Lord. There we go. We can see. See, I would suggest this. There's one cry that's heard repeatedly and passionately in the midst of the human heart. We see it right back back to the garden. We see it in the midst of the issues that surround us. And it's this cry of freedom. 
There's been more battles fought, more revolutions fueled by this one cry than perhaps any others. If I had the courage, I would have come dressed in my brave heart skirt, you know, and summoned up the Scottish heritage. There is a bit of that. And of course, given the, the call to freedom that William Wallace did in September 11, 1297, the Battle of Stirling Bridge, where he said, they can take our lives, but they cannot take our freedom. Sounds much better when it's in a Scottish accent, doesn't it? They can take our lives, but they cannot take our freedom. It's not a peripheral issue. Certainly wasn't for him. I'd willingly lay down anything, even my own life, if I could just have freedom. If I could just have freedom. See, freedom is one of the great modern battlefronts. There's freedom of speech we talk about, freedom of religion, freedom of expression, freedom of choice. And these freedoms don't stand as isolated, self-sufficient cries for freedom. In fact, it's quite the opposite, isn't it? We see playing out daily, if not weekly, in the 24-hour news cycle. There's religious freedom versus the freedom of expression. It's been a very topical issue. We talk about something that's arisen particularly in the US, may flow over here, but pro-life but pro-choice, the freedom of a woman to choose what she does with her own body, my body, my choice, which is interestingly that that line of reasoning only has limited application as we've discovered recently, but we won't open that particular can this morning. Pro-life, pro-choice, we've seen freedom rallies, haven't we, not just here but all around the world, and we've seen many who would call these same rallies the very enemy of freedom. So what is freedom? Would the real freedom please stand up? There's no doubt that there is a, a conflicting, confusing cry that's arising in the midst of the society that we find ourselves in for freedom. And that's really our mission this morning. We're not going to delve down to any of those specific issues. We might touch on a couple. But I want us to come back to that place where we recognize and we realize, well, what is true freedom? What does the Bible say? What's this great proclamation that Paul, in his brave heart moment, passionately calls us towards? This is freedom. Live in that kind of freedom. So we'll set the scene a little, and that's where we're kind of headed this morning. See, first of all, I'd say this. It's worth noting that freedoms are always by nature in conflict. They are. They're in conflict, and they're in competition. Think of it this way. There's the freedom to spend versus save. Normally we're gifted in one area or another. I won't ask for a show of hands, but they're always in competition. The freedom to save versus the freedom to spend. We can talk about the freedom to work, to have a career versus the freedom to spend time in leisure, doing what I want to do. We could talk about the freedom to take one path, one direction or another. These freedoms are by nature in conflict and in competition. So here's the question. Which is the greater of those freedoms? Which is the greater freedom? Well, you'd have to say it depends on the intended end. See, what is the goal? What's the purpose of the freedom? Is it, is, is it to save for a house? Is it to buy a car? Because that will de depend on which is the greater freedom. Is it to pursue a career? Is it to sit by the beach? Or preferably to find a way to do both together. And then if you do, let me know and I'll come and join you. See, at the foundational level, freedom requires cost, commitment and sacrifice. It's the exercise of restraint towards an intended goal. 
Like if you go to Washington, D.C., as I have on a couple of occasions, and you visit the Korean War Veterans Memorial, engraved in large letters on the wall there, it says, freedom is not free. Freedom is not free. So we're going to get rid of this misnomer that somehow freedom is just doing what we want to do. It's not just doing what we want to do. Ask any addict. Freedom is not free. Freedom is the exercise of restraint towards an intended goal. By nature, it requires cost. It requires commitment. It's not anything. It's defining the purpose and heading towards that intended end and that intended goal. So therefore, we could say that freedom must have, for it genuinely to be freedom, two different realities. Number one, freedom must have a foundation. It must be grounded somewhere. It's not an abstract notion. There's a reality, a fundamental reality to it. It must have defined terms and conditions, a foundation. And number two, freedom must have a purpose. There must be an intended end. It's not freedom if you're just freedom from, unless there's a freedom for, unless there's a freedom to do something to be someone. So there's a foundation and a purpose. So let's compare a couple of different views of freedom. View number one, and I'm hoping this will still make sense in the light of what we covered last week, setting up this reality of the I am versus the modern secularism's cry of the I am. It's all about me. So if we're in that category, the modern secularist's view, freedom is purely based upon our ability to choose what we desire. That's the definition of freedom. I should be able to do whatever I want to do, and if I'm able to do that, then I'm truly free. So in other words, our desire is the foundation. Now the problem there, that if you haven't spotted it already, let me unpack it a little, is that if there's nothing beyond purely our desire, the imagining of our hearts, then everything that we do have is created and subjective. That's going to have all sorts of flow-ons. In fact, I'd love to take a week if we can still follow along with me and bear with me in this series, to talk about how that fundamentally affects rights. Because with freedom comes rights. This is my rights. But how do we have any rights if freedom is purely determined by our desire? It's a little bit like finding your way when there is, by definition, no map. And we want to unpack that, hopefully, next week. So one view is freedom is purely based on our ability to choose what our desire is. Everything's created and subjective. By definition, there's nothing inherent. inherent. There's no inherent rights. There's no inherent anything. Compare that with the biblical worldview where from the very beginning in Genesis 1, and as I said, I want to unpack this reality later as well, but just for our purposes this morning. As scriptures proclaim from the very beginning, this is who we are. We are created in the image and the likeness of God. See, rather than nothing being inherent, everything is inherent. Each person is precious and unique. Each has dignity and worth that is inherent. Not just because we're in a collective sense, but there's a personal demonstrative expression of the Creator's eternal love. Whatever we think about ourselves, whatever we think about other human beings. Every man, woman, and child has been created in his likeness and is therefore seen as treasured, unique, and precious, and of great worth. I was thinking as I was just looking at those foundations, who's been watching the Winter Olympics? Nobody's been watching the Winter Olympics. Wow. We've been watching a lot. lot. Our kids are are right into it. And in fact, um, I know at the youth group, they watched the famous Winter Olympic movie of Cool Runnings. 
based on the Jamaican bobsledding team. And there's, this, there's all sorts of great quotes that my kids love to bring up regularly. But there's this one moment where Sanger, who is a, a pushcart driver, and he's trying to convince the coast, coach that he should be the one in charge. He's like, I should be the one in charge. I'm, I'm the best pushcart driver in all of Jamaica. And the coach says, well, let me take a moment and just explain where I'm coming from. And he lists off his gold medals and his achievements. And, well, I've done this. And the guy's like, oh. That's a heck of a place to be coming from, he says in response. That's where we find ourselves. Nothing is inherent. Everything is inherent. So that's, that's, the, that's the foundation. That's the difference. That's a heck of a place to be coming and approaching anything from. And next week, we'll look at how that affects identity, and it's so crucial in the midst of our society. But we're talking about freedom. And we said the second aspect of freedom must have a foundation, but it must have a purpose or an intended end. So let's go back to that secularist view of freedom, based purely on our ability to choose what we desire. So the intended end of freedom there, following the logic through, is nothing more than the ever-expanding assertion of our will. That's all freedom is. It's us being able to determine and choose whatever we want, whatever lengths we have to go to, to choose to assert our will is necessary for us to live in freedom. And the problem there, and we see this unfolding before our very eyes, if that's the definition, then it does three things. It turns us against boundaries. There can, by definition, be nothing external. Anything external is a hindrance to the exercising of my will and is therefore dangerous. It needs to be removed. It turns us against boundaries. It turns us against others. Some commentators have called this the, the hermeneutics of suspicion. We trust no one, we depend no one, we receive nothing from anyone. Only I can do me, only you can do you. You need to determine for yourself. You cannot rely upon anybody else to interpret that. You cannot depend upon, you cannot, it's, there's nothing there. It turns us by nature against other people. Number three, it turns us against the past. So by nature, all assumptions from the past are no longer Relevant. There's nothing to learn from the past, and the only reason to look from the past is to look for and reinforce any culture of victimhood that we can find. Something to turn against, something to, to make this not our issue, but it's this person's issue, it's history's issue. we just got to live here in the moment. So think that through. Here's the tragedy, is that if we remove the boundaries, there's no external advice, there's no navigation points. If we separate ourselves from the past, what are we left with? We're left with this concept of freedom that's nothing more than the fleeting vapor of the momentary imagination of our hearts. It's this perpetual and ever-expanding assertion of our will to create and curate our own identity and uphold our definition of freedom. What sort of freedom does that truly offer. So compare that again. We talked about the biblical worldview, the foundation of it. See, according to the scriptures, freedom was never something that we work up. It's not something that we've got to derive ourselves. Freedom was a gift from God. God gave man sovereignty and significance from the beginning. We're created in his image. That included the capacity to defy him and undo the created order. This is an incredible thought that we don't have time to unpack. And of course, that's exactly what happened. It caused a disruption to the harmony between God and man, between humans and other humans, and even between humanity and creation. All that we see has unfolded from that. But then in the midst of that scenario stepped in the great 
liberator. The center of the story is this God, as we read from Galatians, as Paul gives us this this incredibly stirring speech. It's a story of a God who frees the powerless from captivity and oppression. Heralds a new day dawning where man is finally sovereign and free, living as he was created to live. Not just free from, but free to be the sons and daughters of the living God. It's who we are called to be. You see, freedom is the free gift of God. It's the certain and unfailing reality of His goodness and grace towards us and of His sovereign choice. It's grounded in the truth of who He is, and it's an unshakable, moving foundation. That's the biblical definition of freedom. We don't have to remove the past and remove boundaries. We rejoice in them. We stand on that foundation. We delight ourselves in the freedom. That's why Paul calls us back to that. Just live there. Everything else is just keeping you in bondage to the elementary principles of the world. Live in the freedom that Christ has won for us. Now, there's one more aspect to this, and I'll try and be quick in this uh, particular avenue, and then we want to bring it all back together. We've kind of tackled this notion of freedom from a, an intellectual perhaps even a a practical point of view. But I want to just tackle it momentarily because of many of the things we see around us from the point of view of history. You see, true freedom is the essence of the highest values of human dignity, justice, equality, compassion, peace, and stability. And if you're interested in delving into this particular aspect further, I'd refer you to a book by a gentleman by the name of Oz Guinness. Anyone come across his writings? Apologist, a few of us have. Writes some great books. He's got a new one that came out, I think, late last year or early this year, Examining Freedom. And it's called this, The Magna Carta of Humanity. Nice little light title. The Magna Carta of Humanity. The subtitle is Sinai's Revolutionary Faith and the Future of Our Freedom. Now, in this book, he unpacks five great revolutions in modern history, the English, the French the uh, Russian, the um, Chinese, and the American. And he profiles their different foundations and their different manifestations of freedom. In fact, what he traces back is that so much of what we see now playing out around us in modernity began, the seeds at least, were planted back in the 18th century Enlightenment. This was an era where there was a slogan held high that man would replace God and that reason would replace religion. And that bred this militant animosity towards God and religion. In fact, in the French Revolution, if you do a bit of research there, you'll see that they did some radical things like removed all the crosses and statues from graveyards. They decreed that cemetery gates would have only one inscription. Grab this for encouragement. Death is an eternal sleep. That's all the graveyards could have. There's nothing else. You just die. I'm not entertaining any other notion. In fact, the climax of this French Revolution was the famous cult of reason that was set up in November 1793, the first ever state-sponsored atheistic religion. Churches were commanded to become temples of reason, and most importantly, Notre Dame, the, the big cathedral in Paris, was inscribed with an inscription over the door that said, To philosophy, the great dawn of the age of reason, humanity will try, will finally be free, or will we? 
Funnily enough, as the French French Revolution outplayed, and I'm trying to reduce a lot of history down very quickly, something happened. They realised they needed to ground people in something. It's a true story. So they replaced the high altar of Notre Dame with a mountain of earth and emphasised that the people worship what they called Dame Nature, Mother Earth. You can see the ultimate futility of trying to have a free people grounded in something. Well, we can't worship God, so we'll worship the earth. We'll put a mound of earth inside churches. Of course, this era of enlightenment bred people like Frederick Nietzsche, who wrote extensively through the 1870s and 80s. He's quoted, this is a saying from him, he says, Human beings are called to transcend themselves into works of art, to take the place of God as self-creators and the inventors, not the discoverers of meaning. So it was his intellectual stream and others like Marx who joined in And intriguingly, both of them had this emphasis that saw the community as it was now as one that was not simply repressive but oppressive and needs to be overthrown in order for humanity to reach its full potential. It's often said, isn't it, that history doesn't repeat, it just rhymes. Are we hearing any rhymes yet of what we're seeing around us? So that continued, and of course, the 20th century birthed various revolutions, specifically the Russian and Chinese, which represented the first successful establishment of secularist regimes in history. And despite their calls for freedom, that was the heart cry. This is, this is ultimate freedom. We've removed God. We've removed religion. We've set up mounds of earth in the churches. We're just going to worship Mother Earth or whatever. We, freedom was the cry. This is what I want us to grab. But far from ushering in freedom... These totalitarian regimes became the epitome of oppressive evil and the complete denial of liberty. Their claims to freedom were left in tatters by the history of their repressive secularist regimes and the slaughter of millions of their own citizens. If history doesn't repeat, it rhymes. And there's a fair bit of rhyming, I would suggest, that we can hear around us. If you missed that, here's the point, and we'll get uh, someone just to come up and play, it'd be great. Here's what I want us to grab if we've grabbed nothing else this morning, and I know, again, we've gone various places. The main point is this, despite the ever-increasing cries for freedom, we've, we've heard them, it seems like they've reached fever pitch, and yet I believe they will continue to only increase. These cries for free, we want freedom. Here's the truth we've got to grab a hold of, celebrate, remember, stand on, proclaim. Intellectually, practically, historically, there's only one foundation of freedom that's ever stood firm and unfailing. There's only one. We've been down this path before. We've tried it. It results in nothing. It's not the freedom of the I am or the self-determined secular humanism, but it's the freedom of the I am great creator and the liberation he made possible. He whom is set free is free indeed. It's the words of Christ himself. So what's our response? What is the key to kind of putting these things right? I love a quote from G.K. Chesterton. He was a famous apologist, a writer. He lived through world wars. He lived through communist, secular regimes. You know it spanned across most of his lifetime. He was famously asked by the London Times, suggested, what what is wrong with the world? Two words he gave them in response. 
said, I am. I am. What's wrong with the world? I am. You see, so much of the root of the problem that we see around us and the conflict that's arising is that we're all wanting to just point the finger. It's this group. It's, it's anyone but us. It's those who believe this ideology or this theology. You know what the root of the problem is? It's the sin that lies in every human heart. None of us are truly innocent. And all of this, I hope, will do nothing but bring us back to that place of repentance, of turning away and of turning towards. Because here's the answer. We say, what's wrong with the world? Well, what's the answer to the world? This is where we've landed each and every week as we've continued to unpack some of these things around us. What's the answer? Is it this? Is it that? Is it on the streets revolution? What, what is the answer? Well, the answer is not two words. It's just one. And I want to leave us with this encouragement. There is an answer. There is a hope that beckons like the brightest of dawns. And that hope, that freedom, it has a name. It's the name that's above every other name. He is the answer to the issues that face us today, to the issues that will face us tomorrow. The problem is the sin that's corrupted us. But the good news is the Savior has come to truly liberate us and set us free, that we might live as an example for the world and say, this is the picture of true freedom. This is freedom. This is what freedom looks like. This is a freedom that's worth building our lives upon, and that's a freedom that is worth truly fighting for. We close our eyes. I'd love to pray for us. So, Father, we just we want to end every sermon want to end every moment that you give to us, every breath that we take. We want to center it. We want to fix it. We want to focus it. We want to land it firmly upon you, upon the reality of who you are, the truth that sets us free. So, Father, in the, the midst of some of the areas that we've covered, in the midst of so much of the noise around us, my prayer is for each and every one of us, even now in this quiet moment, still our hearts, enable us to turn our attention and our affections towards you. And as we've tried to focus upon this morning, help us to grab a hold of, to be reinvigorated by this reality of the true freedom that you offer to each and every one of us. It's not a freedom that's worked up. It's not a freedom that's self-determined, somehow based on the imaginings of what we could do. But it's a freedom that's the free gift of God, the great liberator who set us free not just from the chains of sin and death, but you set us free to be your sons and daughters. I 
pursuit, a, a calling that's worth sacrificing anything else we could do for that reality of what you've called us to do. To be your sons and daughters. As it says in Romans, the earth is groaning for the unveiling of your sons and daughters living in true freedom. Encourage our hearts in that reality. Stir our hearts. Recalibrate our hearts where we need that, I pray. In Jesus' name.